This is not the media. This is hell. Populism is a dirty word. After all, we know populism always caters to our most base instincts, insists on a strict strict adherence to ideology, is the fuel behind cults of personality, and usually ends up with a dictator in charge, a dictator who demands your loyalty, and if it's not given, you are deemed unpatriotic, an enemy of the state, and sentenced to a long life as a political prisoner, silenced by tyranny. Not that that was how populism was always understood. Populism wasn't even populism when it started. It was populist, as in something to call the members of what was the People's Party, a third party challenging the power of the two major parties, a party that had the platform of equal rights to all, special privileges to none. Members of the People's Party didn't have a ring to it, so they went with the word populist instead. That challenge to power, actually believing in the power of the people instead of the greatness of elites, scared the hell out of academics, the intelligentsia, political leadership, and all of the thought leaders back in the 1890s. That people's party power reared its head again around 1920, and then again in the New Deal era of the 1930s, and in the time of the Great Society of the 1960s. It appeared again with Occupy Wall Street, and that power of the people has been seen on the streets during the pandemic. In fact, there is a poor people's campaign right now that continues the tradition of the People's Party and what it means to be populist and in opposition of the elite theory of democracy. We'll return to the populist cause that has never really gone away when we have the return of, by popular demand, Thomas Frank, author of The People, No, A Brief History of Anti-Populism. This is Tom's umpteenth appearance on This Is Hell, and umpteen comes right after, I think, 14. Tom has appeared on our show since the late 20th century. He was on most recently back in 2018. We spoke with him about his then-just-released book, Rendezvous with Oblivion, which is a great title, Reports from a Sinking Society. You can currently find our interview with Tom, our interviews with Tom dating back to 2016 at our website, thisishell.com, when you click on, or when you search on Tom's name, Thomas Frank. Tom's earlier writing includes the books Listen Liberal, Pity the Billionaire, The Wrecking Crew, What's the Matter with Kansas, One Market Under God, and The Conquest of Cool. You can find out more about Tom at tcfrank.com, and you can follow Tom on Twitter at thomasfrank underscore. We want to thank Jim, Phil, and everyone who suggested we have Tom back on the show, because I know there are at least two or three more people, and it might have just been people I talked to at the bar downstairs, I'm not too sure, but thanks to Jim and Phil and everyone who suggested we have Tom back on the show. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth Radio Show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, you are being joined again in the uh, control room with another potential new producer here on the show. Who are you joined by today? Uh, I'm joined by Jess. Say hi through your mask, Jess. <laughs> hey, Chuck. Excited to be here. It's great to have you on the show, Jess. Thank you for uh, uh, potentially being one of our new volunteer producers. I really appreciate all of your interest and support in the show. Thank you so much. And I'm looking forward to hearing both your muffled voices today. Uh, Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what are you going to be deranged about after Trump? What are you going to be deranged about after Trump? Oh, yeah. I was going to look up the word deranged and see if it had some sort of actual psychological or biological meaning. 
I gotta look that up. I know demented means that that's damaged to your brain. I gotta look up deranged. The person with our favorite answer, especially before I answer this week's question from hell, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins our new gray on black This Is Hell face mask, which you can see right now by going to our site, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell. What are you going to be deranged about after Trump? What are you going to be deranged about after Trump? At our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio. You can email it to either of us, chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com, but you have to have your answer in by the end of the show Thursday, because following Jeff Dorch in the moment of truth, we will be announcing the winner of this week's question from hell and our new black this is hell face mask. Alex will be telling us how you are answering this week's question about following our guest. Again, email us your answer to chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com, send it to us via Facebook or Twitter. Today's guest, Thomas Frank, was the suggestion of Jim and Phil and at least a couple more listeners. So we booked Tom on today's Fort Day show. If you ever have any guest suggestions, send them along and we'll share them with our listening audience here on air. And if we actually have your suggested guest on the show, we will thank you as we are doing with Jim and Phil today. Once again, proving that this is hell is truly listener-supported radio. For instance, we got an email from Daniel who writes... It might be cool for you to have Blair Fix on your show. He is the author of the... He, damn it, I was so hoping Blair was a woman. We haven't had enough women and people of color on the show lately. Blair is the author of the following recent papers. How the rich are different hierarchical power as the basis of income size and class, which according to Fix indicates that income tends to increase with hierarchical power, as does the capitalist... composition of income. This suggests that hierarchical power may be a determinant of both personal and functional income. Daniel also sends a link to another paper by Blair Fix, Economic Development and the Death of the Free Market, wherein Fix determines societies tend to become more hierarchical as energy use grows. This result is inconsistent with the neoclassical theory that individual self-interest is what benefits society, but it is consistent with the theory of multi-level selection in which groups suppress the self-interest of their members. Daniel adds, a lot of this work focuses on energy, hierarchy, and operations research. I think he also has a recent book out. Love you guys, Daniel. And Daniel is correct. Blair Fix is author of the book Evonomics, The Next Evolution of Economics, which you can find out more about at evonomics.com. John also sent us an email because old friends of This Is Hell need help. John writes, no, I am not a paying subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, but I am for a couple of years now to counterpunch, and many of the writers that they featured but don't pay have been on your show. Can you, in a small announce on your show regarding, can you make a small announce on your show regarding their fundraising drive? My perception is that Counterpunch is not nearly as far along the curve to a sustainable existence. Asking for money is distasteful, but no one works for free. Keep up the great work you do, John. First, yeah, support Counterpunch at counterpunch.org. And as of this morning, they're only 24% toward their fundraising goal, and they figured out it's like one in every 2,000 people who visit their site actually donate. So if you go to Counterpunch or have in the past, show your support, and we cannot thank Counterpunch enough for their support because it was through Counterpunch that we connected with people like Alex Coburn. So we met all the Coburns through Counterpunch, and we can't thank them enough. So you should go to counterpunch.org and show your support and donate. 
But John, when you write, my perception is that Counterpunch is not nearly as far along the curve to a sustainable existence. Are you suggesting that This Is Hell is better off financially than Counterpunch? Because, and I hate to just disappoint Jess about the very modest stipend that we are giving producers, but uh, nothing could be farther from the truth. And I mean nothing. QAnon is more likely to be true than our financial success relative to Counterpunch being good. Here on This Is How, we do not make enough to earn an actual living. We'd like to, but we are not. They, There are actually people living off of their pay from Counterpunch. However, John is correct that asking for money is distasteful, but no one works for free. Well, He's kind of correct. We worked for free up until a few years ago when we started our Patreon podcast that is exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. And shortly after, when we built our online store that offers our merchandise at thisishell.com, when you click on support, we worked for free because we thought asking for money was so distasteful that considering our content here on This Is Show, requesting, and this is hell, uh, requesting donations was anathema to what we were all about. We actually figured if we do something good enough, we will be rewarded. Yep, we were so dumb we thought this was some kind of meritocracy. Turns out, nope. You actually have to communicate to people you need support or you won't get any, which makes sense, a lot more sense than believing we live in some sort of meritocracy. So show your support for Counterpunch by donating during their current fundraising drive at counterpunch.org. And if you have anything left over, throw a few ducats our way. Finally, we got an email from Veronica in Berlin, Germany. No, not North Dakota, Berlin, Germany. And not New Berlin, Wisconsin. Don't make that mistake either. Veronica writes, Hi Chuck and Alex, I really enjoyed your recent interview with William I. Robinson on his book, The Global Police State, and would like to volunteer to transcribe it if you think this would be useful. Yes, Veronica, it would definitely be useful. In fact, some of the remote work we are asking for volunteers to help us with is transcribing interviews. For years we've been discussing this idea of producing a collection of interviews either in a book or magazine form. So yes, definitely, Veronica, we appreciate your and anyone's assistance in transcribing past interviews. Veronica continues, I might later translate parts of the interview with William Robinson into Croatian and try to publish it somewhere. Last year, I translated your interview with Simon Pirani for the Croatian anti-fascist online journal. Veronica then sends a link to maz.hr, and sure enough, there's our interview with Simon Pirani from 2019 when we discussed his book, Burning Up a Global History of Fossil Fuel Consumption, which reminded us that as we become more and more aware of climate change, we continue to set records every year when it comes to burning more and more fossil fuels. Veronica concludes with, I've previously been inspired by your interviews to translate other guests' texts for anti-fascist, anti-capitalist websites. I'd very much like to be involved in the show in other ways, research, question prep, transcribing, whatever you can think of. So please add me to your list of potential remote volunteers, though I'm currently precariously unemployed. I am currently precariously employed in the German education system. Given the rising infection rates, I'm likely to have a lot of free time on my hands in the near future. Well, that's optimistic. In solidarity, Veronica from Berlin, Germany. Thank you so much, Veronica. And if you are interested in doing remote work for This Is Hell, like Veronica in Berlin, Germany, email Chuck at thisishell.com. Chuck at thisishell.com. Coming up, the over-century-long campaign against populism. 
Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you going to be deranged about after Trump? What are you going to be deranged about after Trump? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new gray on black This Is Hell face mask, which you can see right now by going to our site, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. But you must have your response in by the end of the show on Thursday, following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth, when we will be announcing this week's winner. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. When we think populism, we have been trained to think tyranny. Yet, that has nothing to do with what populism was meant to be. Here to help us understand what anti-populism is all about, what populism was intended to be, and why there has been an over 100-year campaign to demonize anything that is the will of the people, despite this supposedly being a democracy, yeah, he's going to do all of that. Thomas Frank is author of The People Know, A Brief History of Anti-Populism. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Thomas. Chuck. It's so great to be here in this very, very hot seat. <laughs> so listen, the last time I talked to you was in 2018. I think this is the longest that we have not talked in maybe 20 years. And you told me because you had just finished. Uh, we were talking to you about uh, Rendezvous with a bill. Uh, Oblivion. Oblivion, yeah. Yes. We got there, didn't we? Yes, we did. And uh, you said you're working on a history of anti-populism at that time. So congratulations on getting this work done in less than 18 months. Pretty impressive, my friend. It, Yeah, well, you know, thank you. That is very nice of you. It took about two years to write. And, you know, I didn't plan on, on, on it coming out during uh, the COVID epidemic, of course. That, that was kind of a surprise. <laughs> And it's it's really thrown my plans. It's really screwed everything up. You know, I used to, you know, because for me, the sort of um, doing stuff with in the mainstream media is is off the table. And so the only way I can, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, let the world know that I have a, a book is to show up in person, you know, at their neighborhood bookstore. And uh, th I can't do that anymore. So even C-SPAN, you're not on that book show on C-SPAN anymore? Uh, not that I know of, unless they, if they, uh, I, I would know it if I had been on there, but I, no, I was not. So you write that populism was the first of America's great economic uprisings, a roar of outrage from people in the lower half of the country's social order. It was a quintessential mass movement in which rank and file Americans came to think of the country's inequitable system as a thing they might change by common effort. It was a glimpse of how citizens of a democracy born with a faith in equality can sometimes react when the brutal hierarchy of conventional arrangements is no longer tolerable to them. But of today, you point out government of the people. When we open the door to ordinary people, let them actually influence what goes on, they will insist we make bigotry and persecution into our great national causes. Government by the people? When we let the people have their say, unmanaged, uncurated, some large part of them will choose the biggest blowhard on TV to be our leader, and then they will cheer for him as he destroys the environment and cracks down on migrant families. That is not the faith in equality that populism, it was believed, depended upon. What does it say about democracy in the U.S. today when populism seems to be fueled more by a desire for inequality, for bigotry, and not for equality and respect? Oh, my God, Chuck. Ha-ha. <laughs> you're, you're running rings around me here. Would you, would you stop it? <laughs> uh, where do you want me to begin here? Where do you want me to begin? So that, that last passage that you wrote, that's me trying to ventriloquize or, or speak in the voice of 
are sort of modern day anti-populists, but you don't, you don't need me. That's just the very, the first few paragraphs of the book. You don't, and frankly, Chuck, you don't need me to do that. All you have to do is go turn on, you know, um, CNN or open up the New York times or the New Yorker or whatever the Atlantic, you know, whatever the hell it is. Uh, and you'll see that exact, uh, uh, attitude, that emotion expressed, um, you know, the, the, the sort of, uh, well, by the way, the Republicans do it too. Everybody is afraid of the, uh, you know, of the people of we, the people, everybody's, you know, thinks that there's anarchy just beneath the surface. Um, there's all, just this, you know, you're, you're asking earlier, what are we going to be deranged about next? <laughs> oh my God, we're going to be deranged about we, the people forever. So how does populism differ from democracy? Are they both the will of the people? How does populism fall short of being democracy? How, do, how does democracy fall short of being populism? So, you know, they're, they're, populism is an American left-wing tradition. It's not, uh, it's not a synonym for democracy. It's, although it has been, it's been used as such, and, and we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. But it, populism started, the word was coined by a, uh, you know, members of a left-wing third-party movement, actually in my home state of Kansas. Do you remember, Chuck, all these times I've been on your show, and we've always talked about things going on in Kansas, Kansas this, Kansas that. Well, this is one of the few things that Kansas did right. Kansas invented the word populism with some guys on a train in the year 1891, and they were trying to come up with a word to describe uh, supporters of this third-party movement that was just getting going at the time. And it was a classic kind of farmer labor party, uh, the populist party. And for a while, it, uh, uh, it you know stomped all over the place, uh, up and down the Great Plains, in the South, out in the West, all over the Midwest. Uh, populism was kind of a big deal in the 1890s. And uh, somewhere along the road, though, well, I, we should put that that question off because it's uh, um, because it, you know chronologically, uh, populism doesn't get sort of redefined for uh, you know as as what you said for quite a while, not until like the 1950s. Right. And you point out that the American leadership, uh, they, they know on some level that what has happened in Washington isn't due to majority rule at all, but it's money and gerrymandering and the electoral college and decades of TV programming decisions. But the anxiety cannot be dislodged. It is beyond the reach of reason. The people are out of control. Why yeah, does there's this, all, it's all over the place, Chuck. There's, you know, commentators that, that fear and despise and hate, uh, you know, uh, we the people and their word for their word to summarize you know our stupidity and why we can't be trusted to rule is populism they've made this a sort of a, a, a word to denote mob rule so why does the right and left why do they both see people out of control and not money and gerrymandering and the electoral college and decades of tv programming well, a lot of them a lot of them do a lot of them uh, no, note that as well i mean like someone like i guess someone like you and me right but um <laughs> But, you know, uh, why do they talk about it that way? Because because there is a you know, there's a long standing um, strain of arrogance. I mean, look, all the stuff about about the liberal elite uh, looking down their noses on people from flyover country. There is a grain of truth to that, as you and I have mentioned many, many, many times. And, you know, I live here in Washington nowadays and I'm here to tell you that it is correct. It is true. Um, and uh 
there is a certain attitude among these people that you know that that uh, uh, ordinary working class people uh, in the hinterlands cannot be trusted to make the right political decision. They've been saying this for for decades, uh, and it's reached it reached fever fever pitch with Donald Trump. Is populism more than mob action? Is populism a step toward looting and killings of peaceful protesters? Are, are two populist <laughs> sides fighting in the streets right now? No, Chuck, there really isn't a populist side uh, in American politics anymore. I mean, the closest that, that you come to it, to this tradition, to the populist tradition, I'm going to I'm going to be a purist about the way the word what the word means, by the way, it, it you know, it 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 refers to people who follow in this sort of left wing tradition of the original populist party. I'm going to be kind of adamant about that. That's what it means. And one of the things that is most remarkable about American politics right now is that you don't have. Uh, either of the two main parties uh, sort of uh, following the populist footsteps. The Democratic Party was once, uh, uh, you know, the, the sort of bearer of the populist tradition, um, famously, you know, nominating William Jennings Bryan to be its presidential candidate uh, just a few miles south of where you are sitting at this very moment, Chuck. It happened in Chicago in 1896, and he had kind of a populist side to him. Uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt was a sort of the great bearer of the populist tradition. Uh, others, you know, Lyndon Johnson had, uh, you know, a distinct populist side to him when he wasn't, you know, bombing North Vietnam or whatever. And uh, uh, there have been other Democrats, but they, but by and large, the Democratic Party turned away from the populist tradition beginning in the 1970s and sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, for good and for, you know, uh, forever with, with Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, you know, and they became a very different sort of party. But you, so you don't have any kind of, I mean, there's a, you know, Bernie Sanders and that sort of thing, but we saw what happened to him. But the, the Republican Party has done, a, and this is another thing that you and I have talked about many times before. The Republican Party has done an incredible job of pretending to be a uh, a kind of populist movement. You know, Donald Trump that referring to himself as or his followers, I should say, referring to him as the blue collar billionaire. All of this outreach that they've done to working class people, all of this class based resentment that they appeal to. They're very, very, very good at it, at pretending to be a farmer labor party that then just by chance uh, never ever delivers <laughs> anything to uh, farmers and workers you know so is is neoliberalism is that is that anti-populist is is democracy inevitably populism and is neoliberalism anti-populist neo Damn it, Chuck! I know. Just uh, <laughs> you, you keep trying to get get me back to this one point. Look, neoliberalism, yes, is anti-populist by its very nature. The whole idea of neoliberalism is uh, government by technocrat. Uh, you know the, that you, you, everything can be managed from Washington D.C. with a couple twists of the knobs. It's all about uh, admiring. You know what's the saying that the, that all the all the Democrats are are repeating now? You got to trust science. Well, that's not. You know they've been saying you have to trust. Ex experts uh, for a long time you know that's that's the whole idea of the democratic party is let these um, experts rule us and everything will be fine and uh, as a matter of fact this has worked out really 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 badly and there's uh, excellent evidence to suggest that uh, rule by 
uh, a certain class of expert is in fact a recipe for disaster. And we talked about that before. That was the sort of message of listen liberal. But uh, the Democrats and the neoliberals more generally can't see that. Uh, they can't uh, see that evidence. They can't understand. Even if you were to explain it to them, it wouldn't make any sense to them. Uh, that's not something that makes sense in their sort of world of meaning. Uh, for them, it's all you know. The, uh, experts are always right. That's why they call them experts. You know, you you know that's and 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 you your your role in this uh, system is to bow down. You want to talk about democracy? Let's talk about democracy. For um, centuries in this country, uh, you, you know, American elites mistrusted. Democracy. The, the people who founded this country mistrusted democracy, with the partial exception of Thomas Jefferson. The, uh, the founding fathers did not like democracy, and they built into our system a whole bunch of ways to keep democracy in check. Uh, the Electoral College is the most famous. It's still standing. Uh, the Supreme Court is another one, and as, we're, <laughs> as everyone is noticing to their utter chagrin right now, uh, another one was the U.S. Senate, which up until the populist movement in the 1890s, the U.S. Senate was cho was not elected by the people, but was chosen by state legislatures, um, which you know made it a de facto uh, representative of uh, you know this of a of a certain class of people. So all of these, uh, and and in fact, the American ruling class distrusted democracy uh, deeply. Up until I would say the middle of the last century, you know, you look at uh, one of the chapters of the book is about the New Deal. You know, is this sort of great populist moment in American life, the 1930s, when you had this democratic flowering, you know, the great decade of the common man, you know, Frank Capra movies, WPA art, that sort of thing, and the elite of this country lashed back against that you know, development in the most spectacular way. They despised it. They said that, the, you know, the people were, you know, this was going against the grain of nature itself. The ordinary people could not, could never be trusted to rule themselves. But here's what happened, Chuck. At some point, you know, American elites used to always say that, you know, denounce democracy. Democracy is not what we are. Democracy is not a trustworthy system. But by the time of World War II, that became impossible. I mean, we'd fought this huge war for uh, democracy. Uh, you can't come out after World War II is over and say that you're against democracy anymore. Th th you have to have a new word to describe what it is that you hate about democracy. And uh, a group of uh, social scientists and you know academics in the 1950s came up with that word, uh, populism. They took it from the name of this movement from the 1890s. They decided, looking back at, at from the 1950s, that you know, great enlightened era of the 1950s, looking back at the 1890s, uh, they looked at that movement of the 1890s, that farmer labor movement, and said that was mob rule. That was the sort of all the pathologies of working class people on display. You know, that's everything that is wrong with, uh, 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 you know, government of, by, and for the people. And so they, 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 they started using populism as a word to describe the pathologies of democracy, of mass democracy, of letting everybody have a vote. Um, and uh, that's how the word uh, changed meaning. So there, I've summarized it, everything for you, Chuck. Now so, what are you going to say? Now what are you going to say? <laughs> is populism... 
a challenge to representative democracy? Is populism a movement for direct democracy? Well, the populists themselves in the 1890s were very pro-direct uh, democracy. That is true. They, um, because they, you know, the 1890s were a time very much like the present day. Uh, concentration of wealth was extreme. Uh, monopolies were out of control. There was no effort to stop, you know, monopolies from from forming or, uh, you know, controlling people's lives. And corruption was. Um, you know, corruption was in your face all the time. And, uh, and you know, this is uh, – you could tell stories like the one I'm about to tell about every state in America. But in Kansas, the state legislature was basically in the pocket of this, you know, Santa Fe Railroad Company. Their office building was actually across the street from the state capitol in Kansas in, in Topeka. So they just – the lobbyists just had to walk across the street to give their, you know, their orders. And there, it, it, the, the situation was the same uh, in almost every Midwestern – Capital and the populists wanted to come up with different ways to break the grip of these corporations, and so they, uh, you know, they wanted the secret ballot, for example. They wanted votes for women. This was highly controversial at the time. They wanted, uh, they wanted to crack down on lobbying, uh, and they wanted the direct election of senators. At one point, you know, the Vanderbilt family in New York. Uh, it was so easy to bribe a state legislature that the Vanderbilt family in New York had their. Um, personal attorney made into a u.s senator <laughs> you know but there, there's lots of stories like that from that period so yes they were and they also like the the populists were very um they, they wanted the initiative and referendum uh you know and that's one thing that has sort of come back to uh you know to, uh, to bite us but uh most of the other things that they proposed have come to pass you know women did get the vote we do have the secret ballot uh, senators are directly elected by the people, not by state legislatures. And I don't think anybody thinks those things were, were mistakes anymore. So yes, they were definitely in favor of those things. And the populist tradition is always in favor of making it easier for people to vote. So uh, are we choosing, oh, you're going to love this question. Are we choosing between populism and centrism in November's presidential election? Is Trump a vote for populism and Biden a vote for centrism? No, uh, Trump is not a populist. Uh, n neither was Ronald Reagan. Neither was George W. Bush. Uh, neither was Newt Gingrich. No, uh, all of these, uh, and neither was Richard Nixon or Pat Buchanan or any of these guys. Although they, uh, or, or even you know Steve Bannon, although they often claim to be populists and they often you know talk with this kind of down home manner. You know, you think of Ronald Reagan and his sort of very well crafted Reader's Digest. Uh, appeal, or you think of Donald Trump um, reaching out to uh, uh, you know to areas that have been you know to deindustrialized zones and speaking to them very uh, effectively, but none of them are actually populists because they you know while they they say nice things and they make a good presentation, none of them actually believe in the sort of in the, in in the you know uh, populist solutions to our problems. Look at what Donald Trump has done as president. You know, what's his two great achievements? One is the tax cuts, you know, the Paul Ryan tax cuts. The other is deregulation, <laughs> deregulation of his friends, you know, the polluters. Uh, what he has done is the opposite of populist. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the thing is that what I mean, he does. He is a, he is a fake populist, as as have, as these others have been. 
And the the argument that I've been making, by the way, Chuck, all my adult life, ever since I first came on your show way back when, and I drove up to Evanston in my car, and you proceeded to make fun of my car. The argument that I've <laughs> that was in the 1990s, yeah. by the way. But yeah. the argument that I've been making ever since then is that it is that the only way to stop this kind of uh, fake populism, the conservative, you know, pseudo uh, uh, workerist um, appeals is with the real deal, you know, the uh, honest to God, uh, you know, true populism. This just seems so obvious to me. You know, I've been working on it for so many years and, and talking about it. And yet, you know, we're further away from that than we've ever been. Uh, Joe Biden is not a populist, although he is, uh, you know, uh, you know, he is middle class Joe and and he has a, you know, a nice, you know, he has a friendly way of talking and he likes to, he's very much at home in a union hall. But you look at this guy's history. Right. The the crime bill of 94. Oh, my God. What a what a debacle. Uh, this is a guy that has done endless favors for the banks that never saw a trade agreement he didn't like, you know, was really into globalization. This guy was part of the problem uh, in the Democratic Party. So I would say there really isn't a populist alternative on the ballot now, but that's not that's nothing new. There hasn't been one for a long time. We are speaking with Thomas Frank. He is author of the new book, The People Know, A Brief History of Anti-Populism. You can find out more about Tom at tcfrank.com, and you can follow Tom on Twitter at thomasfrank underscore. You write how those who are anti-populist see the tragic flaw in the populist approach as its ideal of government of, by, and for the people doesn't take into account the ignorance of the actual existing people. The people can't find Syria <laughs> on a map. They think God created humans one day in their existing form. And if yeah. you give them half a chance, they'll go out and vote for a charlatan like Donald Trump. This is what made the election of 2016 a veritable Dance of the Dunces, according to Georgetown political philosopher Jason Brennan's book Against Democracy and Accounting of the Ignorance of the Average American that even includes suggestions for how an enlightened modern government might, in effect, disenfranchise the stupid and thus deal with the problem of democratic error. In your research, Tom... Wait, Chuck, you need to slow down. Do you realize what you just said? <laughs> disenfranchise the stupid. Take the vote away from the stupid. Have you ever thought about that? Yeah, so in your research, how stupid are people who have populist tendencies, uh, relative my, to centrists? Oh, my God. I, people who are actual populists, like, you know, they're not stupid at all. This is one of the biggest canards. Uh, and by the way, this is not, you know, the literature that you just, uh, you, you just, you know, you read from my book where I'm describing this body of literature. This is an enormous body of literature. All of these political scientists denouncing populism because it empowers the stupid. This is more than one guy. This is dozens of guys and they give each other prizes and they, they have, they have, you know, tenured positions at great universities. Uh, they, when they, you know, the, when the Democrats get back in power, they're going to go be sitting in the administration, uh, in Washington. Um, this is, uh, you know, this, uh, this is what our betters think of us. Okay. That, you know, the, 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 the people are so stupid. They can't find whatever it is, fill in the blank on a map. Uh, they, you know, they say this stuff all the time. Uh, what right do they have to choose uh, our leaders for us? You know, we, the uh, foreign policy community in Washington, should be in charge of these things, and there should be no, no one permitted to uh, interfere with our deliberations. They say stuff like this all the time. Uh, are populists actually stupid? Of course not. Are populists critical of experts and expertise? Yes, very much so. That is a uh, um, 
that is a, 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 a you know an important part of the populist tradition uh, because uh, experts and expertise are often wrong. I, there's a, I spend a lot of time in the book talking about this sort of great issue of the 1890s, which was, and, and, I, and uh, this is not boring to me, by the way, Chuck, and it's not going to be boring to you either once we're done with this, so don't yawn. The great, <laughs> issue of the, the great issue of the 1890s was the gold standard. Should we stay on the gold standard or should we do something else? The populists wanted to go to what's called fiat currency, which is incidentally what we have today. Uh, the Democrats wanted to go to uh, a silver standard. Either one of them would have been better than the gold standard, which was uh, you know, a disaster. But here's the deal. Every economist in America thought that – or every, every prestigious economist in America, every orthodox economist in America thought the gold standard was right. And they thought that the populists were crazy for suggesting otherwise. They thought that these people were in the grip of mental illness for suggesting otherwise. They thought that populism was a movement of stupid people, you know, hayseed farmers in Kansas, Nebraska, Texas, what have you, being uh, led astray by hypnotic orators who were telling them these crazy things that anyone who had gone to college, anyone who had a PhD could see was false. And uh, it turned out, here's the, the, the punchline of all this, Chuck, is that the populists were right about the gold standard. It was terrible. It was a disaster. It was, a, you know, one of the worst things, you know, it, it was the, one of the worst ways of organizing an economy. And it took us decades to realize that, you know, not until the 1930s. Did we figure that out, that the, 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 you know, the, how catastrophic the gold standard actually was? And even then, it still wasn't orthodox mainstream economists who figured it out. It was Franklin Roosevelt and his bunch of sort of you know, this, this, this gang of people who came out of, out of nowhere, out of these obscure colleges and you know, Western uh, banks and stuff like that, and, and said, let's get us, get it, take us off the gold standard. The world of professional economists reacted with a gasp and a, a sneer when he did that. They couldn't believe it. They said it was the end of Western civilization. But again, the populists were right and the experts were wrong. And I just want to go fast forward to, to our own day, Chuck. I'm, you know, one of the, the sort of great revelations of my lifetime was when um, Barack Obama became president. And you remember I used to live in Hyde Park. And I'd, I'd gone to the University of Chicago. I got a PhD there. And Barack Obama was my state senator. And uh, I had had occasion to meet him. And I was very impressed by him. Everybody that, that meets him is. He is, you know, obviously brilliant when you meet him. And when he was elected president, like many other people, I was overjoyed. I was so happy. And I thought, uh, you know, we've had this Bush administration, these you know, these hacks and cronies running the government into the ground. You know, they don't know what they're doing. These these fools, you know, uh, he you know, Bush has been appointing people from regulated industries to oversee the regulation of those industries. You know, it's it's just a recipe for disaster. But here comes Barack Obama, a man that I personally respected really highly, uh, and he is going to set things right. And do you remember he put together this cabinet, uh, his first cabinet, which was so impressive. Uh, all of these high-powered academics. He had Larry Summers, the president 
of Harvard University. He had uh, people who had won genius grants. He had people with Pulitzer Prizes, Rhodes Scholars. Uh, he himself got a Nobel Prize. He had, there, he, but he, and he wasn't even the only Nobel Prize winner in his cabinet, in the, in the administration. There was more than one. And uh, I was like, you know, this is the greatest thing in the world. These guys are going to come in here and they are going to set things right. And instead, they proceeded to, to uh, continue the policies of the Bush administration towards Wall Street. You remember, this is the most important issue at the time. They never got tough with Wall Street. Uh, they never prosecuted a single elite uh, Wall Street banker. Uh, they prosecuted a lot of homeowners, a lot of people who borrowed, you know, uh, who lied on their mortgage applications. But they never prosecuted any of the guys who deliberately packaged and sold fraudulent mortgages as, you know, uh, uh, as investment grade bonds. They never did anything to those guys. Uh, they never did anything to the guys that deliberately wrote investment instrument vehicles that were designed to fail in order to, you know, <laughs> in order to bet against them. They never did anything to those people. They, uh, uh, they never broke up the banks. They never fired the CEOs of the banks. They fired the CEO. I mean, they had seats on their board, right, because of the bailouts. They never got tough with these people at all. And so here's me watching this transpire, watching this unfold, and I just couldn't believe it. And I started, I, you know, and that's what Listen Liberal was all about, was me trying to develop a theory of, of, you know, of the Obama administration and before that the Clinton administration. And once you start looking, you see this everywhere, this democratic ideal of government by orthodoxy, government by, um, you know, by prize experts, prize winning experts who then proceed to fail or who proceed to do, you know, uh, absolutely nothing outside the consensus Nothing bold, nothing daring, uh, you know, nothing that anybody will remember. And they did the same thing with health care, you know, the Obamacare. You know, it's always a half measure. Uh, you know, it's always incredibly complex. Uh, it's always designed to make sure that nobody gets their, you know, their hair must so that nobody, none of the actors, none of the other elites, uh, you know, uh, are, are put out in any way. Uh, they did the same thing with uh, the stimulus package. You know, all of Obama's great achievements, and and you and you start to to see a pattern here, that basically this elite bunch that he's got is acting in solidarity with other members of their same cohort on Wall Street, in big pharma, in Silicon Valley, across the board. Uh, and you look at the Clinton administration, and you see the exact same thing. Uh, and this is the this is the great ideal of the Democratic Party. Populism actually is willing to question uh, those sort of orthodoxies, uh, those prize winning elites and say, you know, what's your actual record on the I know you went to Harvard. I know you were president of Harvard. I know you got good grades in elementary school, but let's evaluate your actual proposals and see if they'll if they'll meet the needs of the American people. It's a just a different standard. That's all. You write that populism is the supreme rhetorical weapon in the arsenal of American politics. On the other hand, the impulse to identify your goals with the elite, with any elite, even a moral one, is a kind of political death wish in a democracy, a faction that chooses to go about its business by admiring its own moral goodness and scolding average voters as insensitive clods is a faction that is not interested in winning. How interested are the Democrats in winning, Tom? Or at least by, yeah, second, by assessing their just, actions. Again, you just read you just read one of the best or one of my favorite. Uh, I shouldn't 
one of my favorite <laughs> passages in the book. I'm talking about what I call the utopia of scolding. Yeah. You're in Evanston. I'm in I'm in Bethesda, Maryland. Very similar kind of place, you know, the very highly educated, uh, uh, very affluent, uh, white collar elite. Um, I was riding my bike around Bethesda and uh, Chevy Chase, Maryland, very similar place. The other day, I didn't see a single Trump sign. You know, I rode for miles and miles and miles. I didn't see a single Trump sign. And But what you do see, uh, you know, well, I'll, I'll come to that in a minute. You see these yard signs. Uh, I'll talk – ask me about the yard signs later on. But what you do – what you notice about this kind of liberalism, the kind of liberalism that is increasingly dominant in the Democratic Party, that is both uh, affluent and highly moral, e- extremely moral, uh, not interested really in economic issues, you know, not interested in the, or, you know, the lives of like people in the um, deindustrialized zones like the south side of Chicago or something like that, not really interested in that. Except as sort of a charitable, you know, a charitable kind of gestures, but uh, not interested in that, but very much interested in displaying their goodness, their righteousness, and in shaking their finger at, uh, you know, in scolding uh, the, you know, the, the, the people who aren't as well educated, who don't know as well, you know, who aren't following the dictates of science, who don't understand uh, what have you, the theory of evolution or something like that. Uh, that's liberalism today. And my argument is that it's it's not built to succeed, you know, electorally, although it might succeed this fall, but it's not it's not built to deliver electoral victories. That's not the object. The object is to make liberals feel good about themselves, uh, you know, make, to make affluent people feel uh, really comfortable in in their affluence. Uh, that you're both – it says to them you are both ex- highly successful, you know, you're in the 1% or whatever, and you are better than those people below you. It's not just that you are richer than them. You're also a better person than them. So it's a new kind of um, – uh, uh, what do you call that when you when you develop a theory like that to explain hierarchy? I mean there's you know, an ideology is what Marx would have called it, but that's that's liberalism today. Uh, a utopia of scolding. It's the most wonderful place to be, you know, to have a uh, a McMansion in Bethesda and uh, put up one of those yard signs basically yelling at people uh, for not being as enlightened as you. So what happens if that kind of liberalism, a kind you call useless, what happens if that kind of liberalism is put back in the White House this November? How well equipped will it be for an angry far right that will convince themselves that the election was stolen from them? <laughs> Well, this kind of liberalism is, uh, you know, it avoids confrontation. It's not very good at that. Uh, it, uh, you know, it's always about seeking consensus and reaching across the aisle. And you can't, you can't, um, you can't make them think otherwise. You know, they, uh, they look at uh, the leaders of the Republican Party in Congress, and they see fellow members of their social cohort, of their class. And they can't uh, imagine that these people uh, disagree with them on the fundamental issues. So it's very difficult. You know, you look at someone like – remember that's how Barack Obama, his great rise to the top, began with that speech at the 2004 Democratic Convention, which was all about finding consensus, all about grand bargains, you know, uh, all about uh, the, 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 the common – you know, that we in the red states and they in the blue states or whatever it was, you know, have things – you know, you remember. Uh, no, they're, they're singularly unfit 
for uh, the kind of onslaught that the right unleashes against them again and again and again. One thing, you know, Chuck, I've written about the right for years, and one thing about the right is that they always play their hand. Uh, you know, they always uh, fight it out to the very last drop. They are always, you know, in, in it to the end. Uh, you look at this, I mean, what they're doing right now in Washington, D.C., you know, uh, grabbing another Supreme Court, another seat on the Supreme Court. Uh, oh, you know, Trump is almost certain to go down to defeat uh, in. Well, who the hell knows? I shouldn't say that. We don't know what's going to happen. Uh, anything could happen because of the mail in ballots, uh, anything, you know, we're, we could be looking at, you know, five different uh, Florida 2000 kind of situations here. But they always play their hand uh, in the most extreme way possible, whereas Democrats uh, are, you know, always very conservative with whatever they've been dealt, um, you know. And and as a result, the Republicans who deserve to be, uh, you know, a minority party are, uh, you know, managed to call the shots, managed to set the agenda, and have done so for 30 or 40 years in this country. I talk too much, Chuck, and I wander far away from what you asked. <laughs> so you write that populism wins, but can that populism attract the money needed to win elections? Is the Democratic Party or any party's choice the people or money, and in the U.S. today, money wins? Says you. I'm here to tell you that the uh, that, that, that the numbers are what wins in a, in a democracy. And Populism is not about, you know, raising money. Populism is about building mass movements of ordinary working class Americans. And we've seen examples of it in our history, the one in the 1890s that I've been talking about, in the 1930s with the labor movement. Uh, you, you know, this overwhelming kind of populist period that, that you know, remade the face of our country in the 1930s, you know, uh, basically set up the, uh, the middle class society, you know built the regulatory state. And uh, populism, you know, I don't think many of the people involved in the new left or the civil rights movement in the 60s would have called themselves populists, but they were basically following the same playbook. And it was headed towards uh, becoming a real populist movement in the later 60s when um, Martin Luther King was murdered. You know, he his whole idea was to transition from uh, civil rights to economic rights and to start, you know, uh, to, to uh, you know, to demand a, you know, a, a, a gigantic um, sort of a gigantic new deal, a kind of a huge great society program. They called it the freedom budget. Anyhow, I'm, I'm going the thing is that I get off track, um, but populism is about building a mass movement and, and mass mass movements win. Chuck, mass movements deliver uh, results. Mass movements are how progressive change happens in our society. It doesn't happen through like by letting the president of Harvard University dictate your economic policy. That's not how it happens. We've now uh, tried that experiment, and we can we can attest that that is the case. Change comes through mass movements of ordinary people. All right, Tom, go off on yard signs. Oh, oh, so there's. <laughs> <laughs> There's a funny yard sign. I'm sure you've seen it. Uh, I'm sure you've seen it in, in in beautiful Evanston or maybe up in Lake Forest. But I see it all the time here in um, here in Bethesda. And the idea of the yard sign is to list all the liberal causes to be as sort of comprehensive as possible. And so it says, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter. It says uh, women's rights are human rights. It says no human is illegal. Science is real. 
uh, and something about water, like they want clean water or something like that. And, you know, I don't disagree with any of those. I'm on board with all of them. But the th- well, here's what gets me about it. There's something missing from this, Chuck. They're always they're trying to be as comprehensive as possible. But there's always something conspicuously missing from these yard signs. And basically, once you start looking for it from liberalism, as we understand it today, what is that thing that is missing? Chuck Mertz. Something to do with class. Exactly. Labor. (laughs) The signs never talk about the 1%. They never talk about the minimum wage. They never talk about your right to organize on the job. You know, never. This is just like it has been deleted from the consciousness of liberalism. And it's just it's once you start looking for this deletion, for this absence you notice it everywhere. You notice it everywhere. I'm serious. Just start start looking for it, and uh, and you should, you know, and you'll notice it all over the place. And you should do a running tally, and you should come back on the air every week and say, "I noticed it again. I noticed it one more time." Mr. Thomas Frank, you were so 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 right. <laughs> That's what I'm like doing. So uh, uh, is anti populist. <laughs> In fact, you can do that every week. You'll have that. You'll have the, the. You'll have the question from hell, and then you'll have the was Tom Frank right moment, and. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. Uh, so <laughs> speaking of the question from hell, we have been speaking with Thomas Frank, author of The People Know, A Brief History of Anti-Populism. This is Tom's... Tom's you um- know what you didn't ask? You, you, the Chicago-centric question that you forgot to ask. What's that? The title. Where does the title come from? Mm-hmm. Carl Sandburg. Oh, that's right. It's... And the book, the book ends, or it, the, the the second to last chapter ends with me, uh, with me, with the, his poem, the great, the most populous poem of them all, Chicago, city of broad shoulders. Yeah. It's a great <laughs> hog butcher to the world. Hog yes. butcher to the world. Ah, oh, those are the days, huh? <laughs> Thomas Frank is author of The People Know, A Brief History of Anti-Populism. You can find out more about Tom at tcfrank.com. And you can follow Tom on Twitter at thomasfrank underscore. You can also find many of the interviews that we have done with Tom at our website right now by going to thisishell.com and searching on Thomas Frank. One last question for you. And as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write, the populism I am describing is not formless anger that might lash out in any direction. It is not racism. It is not resentment. It is not demagoguery. It is instead to ask the most profound question of them all, for whom does America exist? By its founding documents, Tom, does America exist for the elite? It sure seems that way these days. Uh <laughs> You know, it sure seems like that. Like, you know, is Facebook for us or are we for Facebook? You know, are we like just little little um, pawns in the Facebook machine? You know, it's harvesting very, you know, very silently, carefully harvesting our data, um, you know. Uh, and, and then at the end of the day, it's like, you know, look out, they're bigger than the government and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, it sure seems like that, doesn't it? It sure does. I mean – you know, we're in this world that these days where we are just um, – we are nothing and they are everything, you know, the no. 1%. The, and and uh, – but what I, what I really ho- – and, and look, we're in, a, we're in a bad time these days between Trump and COVID, you know, this sort of, this sort of awful thing. And I, what, I, what I meant to do with that ending is I, I would like to see – a revival of the democratic spirit in this country, a, a revival of some sense of social solidarity, 
you know, that, that, uh, that no, they exist for us. The government exists for us. The state legislature exists for us. Big pharma exists for us. Even Wall Street exists at, you know, at, 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 you know, has to be regulated by us. We get to oversee them. It's not the other way around. I sometimes feel, though, Chuck, like we are so far from those attitudes, you know, from from that populist way of thinking uh, that every every American, you know, would like that to be the case. And I think that what I just described are, are, you know, attractive ideas to most people if they sat down and thought about it. But we are so disorganized and fragmented and at each other's throats, you know, and the fear and the hate and the anger, you know, in this time of COVID. God, it just feels like we're a million miles away from that um, from that old sense of populist solidarity. But one of these fine days, Chuck, (laughs) one of these (laughs) one of these fine days, you and I are going to wake up. And this world is going to be different. Mm. Let us all hope so. I'm not holding my breath, though, Tom. (laughs) I'm looking forward to speaking with you again. I hope it's not two years from now. Are you already working on another book? Um, I'm supposed to be, but uh, but I'm not. I mean, I I haven't really cracked it yet. I mean, I've but I'll I'll give you a a hint, you know, since this is the show from hell. It's not going to be about politics. I'm done with this. I'm done with this stuff forever. I've I've written about I've written five books about politics now, and they all tell some different side of the same story. You know, the the, the incredible daring of the right and the weakness and uh, you know feebleness and compromise mindedness of the Democrats. And and then of course the missing element, the missing th- the real third way that's just gone missing in our society, which is populism. You know, which is just everybody wants, but we have no way of getting. And I just and I'm done. I'm done talking about it, man. I, I don't blame you. And uh, and I just want to point out again. I've said it so many times. I think the first time we had you on the show was for one market under God. But before that's right. Before that's right. That, and that was and that was yeah. That's exactly right. God. And then the but be, the book before that was the conquest of cool. And I just want to point out to people that you also write a lot about culture as well, not just politics. So that's right. And that's what I'm I'm going back to. I'm going back to the conquest of cool and sort of resuming for I you know that I could have gone in like all of these different directions after that and I chose to go into politics and you know make millions of people really 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 unhappy and now I need to <laughs> I need to go back and see what I did wrong and start over again and that's what I'm doing going back to your baffler roots well, it's sort of. It's, yeah. Yeah, that's right. All right, Tom. Well, thank you very much for being back on the show. Really appreciate it. Great book again. And it's always a pleasure speaking with you, sir. Chuck, you got it. Anytime. All right. Take care. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money. So you do the math. This is hell. Alex, what's this week's question from hell? Uh, this week's question from hell is What are you going to be deranged about after Trump? What are you going to be deranged about after Trump? Aaron D. says, the way Sleepy Joe puts Humpty Dumpty back together again. Uh, Leslie P. says, Biden ignoring the left. David R. says, what to do with all these new gray on black, this is how face masks. <laughs> what are you going to be deranged about after Trump? Fabio L. says, Biden appointing a Republican to the Supreme Court. 
Nathaniel T says, if Trump is gone, I can return to attacking the very voters that returned the blue team to power frothing at the mouth about a fracking ban helping Putin or something. (laughs) Or something. I like how that just trails off. Uh, Pete V says, nothing at all. After Trump, we will all be perfectly well adjusted. Uh, Walter B says, Joe Biden isn't enough. What are you going to be deranged about after Trump? Sheldon B says, Democratic Party establishment. Andrea J says, I still want answers about the TP shortage. Bradley R says, I can't go back to brunch because my favorite hipster cafe was burned down by Antifa. Dan T says, guillotines. Jesse W says, booty. Like that one. Uh, Matt L says, Biden birthers. And finally, Adam A says, dude, I remember when this show used to have lighthearted fare like these little crypto word puzzles about the latest statistical evidence for climate change and genocide sponsored by that beer I couldn't find nowhere. And now my ex is getting married to that and the house is underwater. And thanks, Trump. Thanks a whole lot. <laughs> Who left that? That was Adam A. That's <laughs> so a request for a twist off to come back. <laughs> I guess so. Uh, he sent us a great email recently about uh, moving back to Chicago and living up, leaving Portage Park and how there are cops everywhere. You can't swing a dead cat without hitting a cop up there. Uh, Alex, who is going to be on tomorrow's? This is how. Uh, tomorrow, uh, Thomas Goki of the Debt Collective will be on to talk about their book, uh, because it's a debt collective, Can't Pay, Won't Pay, The Case for Economic Disobedience and Debt Abolition. And you've sent this to me already. Oh, right? uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it. so. Uh, so we will have m- more of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show. Uh, we will have the guest on from the Debt Collective. We'll be announcing the winner of this week's question from hell on Thursday, so make sure you have your response in for that. We are still looking for new volunteer board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board, as Alex does and has done nearly every day for several years now, as Richard does, as Daphne was trained to do yesterday, and as Jeff is being trained to do today. Jess! I said Jeff, didn't I? Uh, You maybe did that uh, old-timey thing where you made your S's look like F's. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I did. Thomas Jefferson. I have that font. Jess is being trained to do today. Email me at chuck at thisishell.com, and you can be part of our staff as well. We'll have more of your answers to the question from hell tomorrow. Anything else I really wanted to mention? Nah. Oh, yesterday when we were talking about how uh, money is moved around the world in very weird ways through the FinCEN files. I actually know somebody whose family, they're incredibly, incredibly, incredibly wealthy. And they're incredibly, incredibly, incredibly wealthy because of a food that everyone, a certain specific kind of food, everyone who is listening right now, I know that every one of you have ingested this food. And he would tell me about how he would take suitcases full of cash to the Cayman Islands on a regular basis. So, and that was back in the 80s, I think. So there is nothing new about money laundering. <sighs> Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell... And to support the show, visit thisishell.com.